Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. So I'm going to say something that I'm guessing everyone agrees with to start with. It's always a good place to make me feel affirmed. We all want to protect the rights of every human being, don't we? I think that's something that we would all agree with. We, we would all say, inside the church and outside the church, that to protect the rights of every human being is actually a, a core pillar in building a fair and just and moral society. Amen. Here's the question I want to ask us, because everyone would say that. Why? Why is it that we should protect the rights of every human being? Because it, we are all made in the Thanks, Ralph. That was kind of my punchline, and I was going to get to it about 10 minutes. <laughs> So, Frank has been reading the Bible, which is really good. I mean, if you've been in church, you know where this is going. But let me, what I want to do is just unpick for a few minutes, like the foundations, because a lot of people will talk about this without a biblical foundation, without Genesis 1, without the image of God. And I want to suggest that unless you have a strong doctrine of the image of God, that we're all made in his image, we cannot actually validly and logically say that every human being's rights should be protected. Because if we were just made through a big bang, as we now come to call it, without the intervention, without the blessing, without the purpose and creative power of God, if we did evolve to this point without a higher being, then what differentiates you and me from monkeys and dogs and giraffes and amoebas and fish? Okay, then might slightly more complex. We have some rationality towards us. We have some unique ways in which we relate to us. But at a category level, what differentiates you and me from the animals around us. And if you were to take that worldview logically, so a lot of people say, no, can we come, we've evolved through a kind of a, a physical thing that happened without the intervention of God, but I still, still want to hold on to the fact that every human being has rights, human rights that should be upheld. How can you actually do that if you hold on to what is the general secular worldview right now? Yeah. Some might say, honestly, it's common sense that we treat each other with respect to how we like to be treated in return. That's the kind of, and in fact, some atheists would say to Christians like us and to religious people, people who believe in God, that actually it's a weakness in us that has to say that we need God and a doctrine like the image of God to ensure this happens in society. Surely it's common sense. Why do you need something extra than just common sense? But actually, if you look around the world, it is not actually common sense to everybody to treat everyone equally. The caste system is still well and truly alive. We're still living in the wake of the Atlantic slave trade and all the trauma that's caused. Today, there are over 40 million people who have been trafficked for labour purposes or for sex purposes. That's today. And some of our wealthiest neighbourhoods in London, there are people who you might walk past who are being kept without their, uh, not voluntarily. We abort how many babies a year? It's not common sense to everybody. When there are other things that actually begin to supersede the 
rights to protect another human being. Actually, sometimes we go to the back rather than. So it's not necessarily common sense. Peter Singer, who's an Australian moral philosopher, he doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Christianity, and he takes this worldview to its logical conclusion. He actually, I want to suggest, is someone who has the courage and the integrity to say, if this is truly my worldview, and let me work this one out, if this is actually going to happen, he works it out. And so he argues that there are times where animals actually have more rights than a human being based on their capacities. Because if you have a child who's unborn, who can't cope in life themselves without them, what can they do to provide or what capacities do they have? Potentially a monkey or an animal or a dog at that point, he argues, has more rights than that unborn child. What about the mentally handicapped who can't live unless they are supported by others? Or the very elderly who can't live without external help from others? And he takes this, because what makes us different? He says, well, we, we don't try farmers for killing a cow for murder. And if we are just part of this ecosystem of evolution, if we are just physical matter, then actually, why not? I want to suggest, I think he's right. If you are going to go with that world where there isn't a God and we just I think he's absolutely right. One writer in the garden called him the most dangerous man in the world. He's also probably right. We live with this Ill illogical system where we say that everyone has rights, we have no actual foundations for it in reality. And I want to take today is that what we have here in Genesis 1 is the only real foundation for building a society that reaches every corner of our society and reaches the weakest and the most vulnerable, that everyone gets treated justly and fairly. So sorry, we go. It's got a bit quiet here today, and potentially right. So, we're going to touch on some issues today that I've been praying for for the Lord's compassion and His heart to come through because I don't come with a Bible just to slam something on us and something that I'm living under and I'm going to be <coughs> One of the things that I've just been reflecting on this week, and I think, though, what's in my mind is probably in your mind as well, is that I know that I go through my day sometimes. And I don't treat everyone equally. Sometimes people are frustrated. Sometimes they get in the way. Sometimes they inconvenience us. Sometimes they're not actually important to the things that we want to be about. So you're not helpful for the things that I'm about. So I want to deal with this person because they can get this stuff. At so many levels, on a personal level, we do actually treat sometimes people with more importance and less importance. So all of us, it's not just society out there, all of us are just need to be grounded in the doctrine of the image of God. So what I want to do is talk about the doctrine and then talk about some implications of the doctrine, okay? Yeah. So let me just read this from Genesis 1, just to reread these two verses from 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And man at that point in Hebrew is Adam, which speaks of the general for male and female, as we see later in verse 27, after our likeness. But when we read image and likeness, sometimes scholars try to differentiate, but probably image and likeness, they're just synonyms, because in lots of other places in the Bible, image and likeness are used interchangeably. So we see that image and likeness, I think we've got to see the same thing. And God says to us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates man to stand alone before God, made in his image. And God creates female, standing alone, to be there in God's image. We've got to ask ourselves, why do we why do we make images? What is the purpose of like God putting his image? Because this isn't said of any other creature or anything else in the earth. Everything slows down at this point, if you notice. God speaks, he creates, speaks, he separates, speaks, he says. And on this day, everything begins to slow down and attention is given to man and woman. What is it about us creating images? On my desk at home, I have a picture of Tori and I. At a, at a wedding, in fact, Richard and Claire's wedding. Um, and uh, we spruced up, it's the first time in like two years, we've got on some nice clothes, and we to have a shower, we do have a shower. Um, and uh, it's just a really nice photo. So I've got this, this, this photo of us on my desk, underneath my watch, just when I work. But why, why, why did I get this one printed out? Because I, I want to be reminded of Toria, I want to be reminded of us, I want to be reminded of I love her, all the things that this image represents far more than just this, this, this photo. It reminds me of our relationship together. Images remind us of something bigger about the person, don't they? We have statues all across London today. And I know statues are like a big political thing, but just please try and park that for a moment. Just the principle of the matter. You know, why do we put statues up across London? We put statues up because we want to remember that person's deeds, their work, something about them at that moment, we said actually we want to remember what this person stood for. So on the way to church, we drove past Emily Pancast's statue, we drove past Mahatma Gandhi, we drove past um, Winston Churchill, all of these men and women who were there to, to, to remind us of them and their deeds and their courage and whatever it was they stood for. Why would God set an image of himself in the earth? I want to suggest so that you and I would have a reminder to, to God. That when we would look at each other's face, there would be something in us that would take us beyond each other and to the creator and to the maker who made us. What if God got busy creating seven billion living, breathing, diaphragm-pulling statues and placed them on the earth? He really, really wants to be known by you and me. London is a place filled with the image and the likeness of God. Someone once jokingly said, God loves cities more because there's more of his image in cities, which I like to agree with. But God places us in the world so that we might look at each other and we might see and be reminded of the God beyond us. As Isaiah 43 says, that God created us for God's glory, so that we might look at each other and might glorify God. And this, this imaging of God is not just about capacities. It's not just about, hey, you can reason, that's surely part of it, you can have relationships with others in a unique way, that we actually have existential questions. You never catch a monkey having a midlife crisis, walking in the corner, thinking, what's my life all about? But men, when they get into their mid-40s, they somehow, you know, 
So we have these questions that other animals don't, is it about potentially? But actually, if we build the image of God on capacities again, well then equally zero, if someone doesn't have the reasoning, they don't have the capacities to do these things, well then is there gradations to the imaging of God? But as what the scriptures say continues, the image of God is something innate in us, not bound up in our abilities and our capabilities, and something that is irreducible, Amen. whether you are a Christian or not. This is not a Christian thing, this is a human thing. And we never lose the image of God. So even after the fall, as we read this in Genesis 5, we speak about people who are now sinned. In Genesis 5, people are still spoken of as having the image of God. In Genesis 9, even when people are committing murder, they are still said to have the image of God. In James 3 verse 9, we've talked about people in and outside of the church. They still have the image of God. There is something irreducible in us, no matter how heinously we behave, that declares we are made in his image. We do not always live up to the image. We do not always reflect the image fully as we should, but we as human beings are made in this image and that can never be taken away. So there are pedophiles in jail right now. They are still made in the image of God. And it's important to say that because otherwise we find ourselves again in this very shaky ground as to how do we actually treat each other. So the question is, how should we live in the light of this fact? That if we are all made in the image of God, this is what this series is all about, blueprints. How, how should we actually live if they were if this were true? And I want to suggest eight things. But please don't be too scared because I should go fast. Just check the time. Okay. Eight things. Implications. Some of these you will like. Some of these I'm anticipating the room will go quite quiet for. And I'm praying for much wisdom so that my word can help um, us all. So the first thing is this. Everyone that we meet, it's just simple to start just finding our way into this one. Everyone that we meet is made in the image of God. The cashier that you meet, who's rude to you, someone who loves you, the person in the car if you drive in London, who cuts you off. There have been those moments where you're waiting for your turn, you can see them edging you out. You ever get that like, Irrational rage for no reason because they just like mistreated you in the car. That person, are you laughing? I see I'm speaking to hearts right now. <laughs> they are made in the image of God. Everyone that we deal with, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his or spoke this in his famous sermon, The Way to Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to us the life of a gnat. But it is to immortals who would we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This doesn't mean we have to be perpetually solemn, says we must play. But our merriment must be that, be of that kind. And he said, in fact, it's the best kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Everyone we meet. So everyone who you meet who is attractive and wealthy and has more abilities and talents and is beyond like gone further than you, they are made in the image of God. And everyone who you meet who is not attractive and doesn't have wealth and is actually not as far along as you, they are made in the image of God. Everyone
everyone who gets in your way and helps you. They are made in the image of God. And that needs to get deep down into our hearts so that we treat everyone with, with be, there, be with them for two minutes at the cash till or for 20 years. We treat them as though God made them in his image and he's been to be treated as though God made them. Amen. Because in, Jesus says in, in Matthew 25, he tells this parable about these, the, the goats and the sheep. And he says that there are some who looked after those who are the least of the society and those who didn't. And Jesus, in his parable, he, he gets spoken to and he says, well, you, you never looked after me, you never clothed me. And these people say, when did we clothe you or give you food or give you drink? He says, every time you treated the least of the society, then you fed me and you clothed me. So how we treat those people, Jesus feels it. This is not abstract principles and doctrines. God created every soul in London. Secondly, this. If we believe in the image of God, we will know that each of us has worth. Because if our, if our dignity is based not on our capabilities, but on the fact that innately we are made in the image of God, our worth is not based on how well we are doing, in life and how often do we build up our self-esteem based on how we are doing maybe comparatively to other people or whatever it might be but actually we all whether we feel like we're doing well by our own standards or doing badly we have worth back in 1924 the olympics there is this famous some of you have seen chariots of fire eric Liddell and harold abrahams who were two of the best sprinters of the time they were going to the 100 meters race um, and she watched the film, it's a good film. And Eric Adel was a Christian. And he was famous with 100 meters, Paris Olympics, 1924. And he, as he looked through the schedule in the heats, he found out that one of the heats to the 100 meters final was on a Sunday. And because of his faith at the time, he did not want to race on a Sunday. He wanted to choose to take that day as a Sabbath rest to the Lord. And so his favorite event, who he was favored for, he chose not to compete. He said, I run to glorify God. He says, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. That he wasn't running just to kind of justify his own existence. He was running because actually just felt the Lord's pleasure that God made it fast and that he should run for his glory. So it was neither here nor there whether he got a gold at the end of it. So what happened is in the end is that he trained for the 400 meters and amazingly actually won in the 400 meters creating an Olympic record and then a European record it took like 12 years after him. An amazing story. On the other hand, there is Harold Abrahams, who wasn't a Christian. And in the film, taken from his life, he says this to a reporter, he says, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He was running for a completely different reason. He was running to achieve something to justify his own worth in his life. And how many of us deep down, even as Christians, are actually working our lonely years to somehow justify our existence? And when the threat of something being taken away is there, we fear the very foundations of our life are being shaped. If you know you are made in the image of God, you could lose your looks and still have worth. You could lose your health and still have worth. 
You could lose your job and your income and you would still have worth innately because you are made in the image of God. You don't have to be popular or wealthy or do well in life to have a work. Amen. We all have work, and I just pray that we would let that one sink in. Because if we're going to be a church that reflects something of the glory of the Lord, I want to say we, we, we need to go to work, go to our studies, and be with our families in a way that reflects that. That we have a peace about things going well or not so well because we're made in His image, because that will have work. Thirdly, we are going to take responsibility for our own lives if we believe in the image of God. Because we're not just made up of our physical matter and neurons and what makes up our brain. Because we are made by God for a purpose, to glorify him. Because we have the ability to have a relationship with God, it means that we are all accountable for our lives and our actions. That we can't just blame our neurological makeup or our personality or something in our physical life for our bad behaviour. Because if you believe this is all that there is, then sure, if there's no God, there's no higher being that created you for purpose, if we are just physical matter, you could say, hey, don't judge me, that's just who I am. That's just my personality. If you don't like this, I ain't changing, so deal with it. Now, how many people do you come across exactly like giving it all the finger, like, this is who I am, so don't, you know, like, like it or lump it, deal with it. And that's like what we're told to be, isn't it? Like, so there's no accountability for like your bad behavior because it's, it's logical if we believe that we're just an evolution of just the physical being. Well, this is who I am. I'm not changing. This is who I am. So, but if we're made in the image of God, creating the accountability for Him, then actually we take responsibility for our own lives. We take responsibility for our own actions. We take responsibility for our own sin. And we hold other people accountable, and we have a judicial system that is fair that actually keeps a society accountable because we believe everyone is before God and each other. This is the grounding in Genesis 9 where we're told when someone takes another life, they are to be held accountable, not because, hey, just it's good for building society, because that person is made in the image of God. This is the grounding for a judicial system. And writers like Tom Holland, who isn't a Christian, so the very reason why we have this sense of what people think is common sense is actually this, this Christian, Judeo-Christian background from the Bible, that's just only common sense to the majority of people because of our Christian roots. And so Christians, if we believe that we are made in the image of God and we're responsible for our good and for our wrongdoing, we are to be the ones who are the freest in saying sorry, freest in taking responsibility. Free is to say, actually, I own that. That was wrong of me. I'm going to repent. By God's grace, I want to change and grow into his likeness. So thirdly, we take responsibility. Fourthly, if we believe in the image of God, we will treat those who have a different opinion of us with respect. Oh my goodness, do we need this today. You only have to spend, like, obviously two minutes on Twitter to realise if you disagree on the slightest political or religious issue, Oh, you are going to get slammed. You are, you are, if, if it's possible, you are going to get cancelled. <laughs> That's not the point to our men. Like, <laughs> but we know, like, who is nervous of raising their opinion on some political matter in the workplace now? Like, like 
Oh my goodness. You're like, if you said you're a Christian as well, and all the packets that people think that goes with that right now, how quickly you might get like sidelined or what if there was a society that actually could disagree and even disagree strongly, but treat the person that they're disagreeing with with respect and dignity because they are made in the image of God? What would society look like? And I would not suggest that the way that we're disagreeing with one another right now, and everyone agrees that we are increasingly polarised, is just a function of the fact that we have taken God and our Judeo-Christian roots out of the picture. And so while we say, yes, we like to treat everyone with dignity and protect everyone's rights, actually, at a personal level, we don't. At a social media level, we don't, because the foundations aren't there in reality. So what is, what is as Trinity Church London... We disagreed with our Muslim neighbours about God and the nature of salvation. And yet we treated them as though they're made in the image of God with respect and dignity. And we disagreed with the likes of Stonewall and their sexual ethics and what is the definition of marriage. And yet we treat every individual that we come across with respect, with a listening ear, with dignity. What if there was a tribe in London who, when they were curbed and called bigots and narrow-minded and out of touch, and a dying breed, yet came back with blessing and honour and a dignified response. That would be the church, amen? Yeah. So if we believe this, we would treat those who are different from us with respect and dignity. Fifthly, we will work towards racial justice. What is the, I want to suggest, the only ground for true, proper racial justice? It's the fact that every one of us is made in the image of God. This, these verses were some of the founding verses of what spurred the American um, uh, fight against racial inequality. So Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., he said this in one of his sermons, The American Dream. He said, the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. So there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And one day we will learn that live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of everyone. Our prayer is that here at Trinity Church London, everyone would experience this and that we could then take this out from this place into the world. Amen. Simply, we will speak up for the weak and the vulnerable. If we're all made in the image of God, irregardless of capacities, as Martin Luther King Jr. says, that was rejected in us by God, then we will treat those who have nothing to contribute to society with equal dignity to the CEOs and the politicians and those who seem important to us. And this will touch so many areas of life. It will touch our views on abortion. Because at the moment we live with this very strange, illog illogical position where we are, as a society, allowed to abort or murder a child who is made in the image of God up to the age of 24 weeks. And yet, there are many premature babies who are born before that, and we spend millions upon millions of our money 
and fight and pray to see them stay alive. Even after 24 weeks, if the child is um, supposed to be having some sort of medical issue, a disability, you can abort up to the point of birth. And there are people pushing to have that pushed through. People like Peter Singer would argue that there is even a period after birth that if there's any postnatal depression or whatever reason, they could basically take that, that logical, you see where things go. But just because a baby cannot be seen, does not mean it's not an image God, just because it can't fight for its own life and need medical help. If we believe that everyone is made in the image of God, we speak and stand up and fight for their rights as well as our rights. And those women who have had abortions, we treat as those made in the image of God with dignity and respect. So the political system couldn't say, well, which side do you want? We're on both sides. It means we treat the elderly with dignity and respect. Paul in 1 Timothy 5, he says that one of the marks of the Christian church is how you treat the elderly and the vulnerable. And he says, if you don't treat your elderly family members well, you are worse than an unbeliever. Not my words, I'm just a messenger. You can read it for yourself. It's in 1 Timothy 5. So should that reflect how we treat the elderly or those who are mentally handicapped? They will never find what we think is a fully functioning life that God created for his glory. If we believe in this, we will find the very edges of our society and treat everyone with the same dignity and respect. Seventhly, we will do what we can to stop the porn industry. Told you we quiet. <laughs> I did warn you. Because the stats say that this is an issue that's like, it's an epidemic. And it's viewed sometimes as a victimless pleasure, but it's not victimless. There are companies like Pornhub who are being found guilty of profiting of sex, tra sex trafficking and not actively doing anything about it because it can't be policed. It's so rife. 20 some million mostly women, sex trafficked. And if we are going to be Christians, it means at the very least, we do not get involved with pornography because it's not a victimless crime. That woman, that man, they are made in the image of God. They are not just physical neurons and means for someone else's pleasure. If we are to treat everyone in that way, then we say no, and when the moment is right, not everyone is going to be a full-time campaigner, we stand up against the industry that treats people as less than the image of God. Amen? Yeah. I want to talk about some things because unless the church does, we leave a big vacuum in society because we are being preached at all the time. A message, propaganda, and we need, we need to know that. Every time you switch on a sitcom, it's not neutral. Every time you turn on the BBC, they're not neutral. A message is being given across as to how the world should be. And so unless we say some things that feel uncomfortable in the moment, we're leaving a big vacuum in our hearts and in our minds and for those people. So this is why I want to talk about it. And let me just say, if you are, if you are an addict of porn, which is likely, 
someone in this room. There is no condemnation here. The best thing you can do is share with someone you trust and begin to walk in the light. You will find wholeness. You know why Jesus came? He came for you. He came for the poor addict to set you free. He came because he loves and wants to see a life flourish. So eighthly, and this is where we're going to pull up into glory. <laughs> if we believe in the image of God, we will search for the one who can actually redeem us. Because we're all made in his image. We all have his identity. We're all imprinted, objective. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in the image of God, we don't live up to the standard of this, which is why life can feel so painful. Because there is this assumption that we will be treated with dignity and respect. And as I'm beginning to realise, the more you go through life, it's just an accumulation of hurts. Anyone testify to that? You know, when you're like 20, or life is just glory and promotion and amazing, and then actually you go through life, you get into your late 30s, you realise actually life is an accumulation of dealing with disappointment and people who hurt you at difficult times. It's very sorry to like crush any like young dreams, but keep dreaming. Uh, but listen, do keep dreaming, keep believing, keep going for it. But you have to deal with hurts, and it's part of parts of life you have to deal with at some point. But the reason I think why life is so hard to deal with and process sometimes is because we expect there is something innate in us that expects to be treated differently in this world, and we don't treat each other to the full extent of being made in the image. Not one of us. So if we believe this, we need to look for someone who can actually redeem the fullness of this reflected image in us. And the only one who can do that is the image himself, Jesus Christ. Amen. Because Jesus Christ, we're told, is not made in the image of God. We are told in Colossians 1, he is the image of God, the one who created all that is invisible and all that is visible, the one who is the beginning and the end of all things. Jesus Christ is the image of God. So that Jesus tells us in John 49 that if you look at me, you are actually looking at God the Father in heaven. That he reflects the fullness of everything that God is about. His love and his compassion and his self-sacrifice and his desire to see us all flourish in life. All of this is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And we need to search to find this man, Jesus Christ. We need to look to his face. Amen. and I was just driving to church and just, I just idly said to you, I can't wait to see Jesus' face. Amen. You know, there are some people, and I, there's, some of you will know Terry Virgo, who helped start our network of churches. He's 80-something now. I'm hoping he's going to come to our church and get the way next year. I'm working with him, but um, he's someone I look at his face and, like, I feel reassured. There is a kindness and there is a maturity and there is a compassion and there is a there is a lack of judgment and there is a credibility and a steadfastness that when he's around and when I'm close to him, I feel reassured that like everything's going to be okay. Some of you will know people like that. When you're with them, you feel reassured. Just imagine looking at Jesus' face and everything that will begin to fall into place how your heart will begin to relax, how you will begin to realise that everything will be okay. And we're told that in Jesus' face, 
is the image of God. And so if we believe in this, we are to go to Jesus and to look into his face, study his life in the Gospels. Look at his self-sacrifice. Look at how he treats us who treat him badly. Look at his compassion. Look at his love. Look at the way he walks towards a cross willingly for us. And if we, with unveiled faces, Paul says, behold the glory of the Lord. If we look to Jesus and see all that he has done for us and the way that he has moved towards us, if we behold his face, if we look to him, we will find that we will increasingly reflect his image to those around us so that we might be like a 45 degree angle mirror that we look at Jesus and his image is reflected on our lives and then beams out to those around us in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and that the Lord's love gets reflected through us and gets given to others. That the Lord's compassion for me and my best, I can then pass on to others. That where the Lord sacrifices himself for me, I can say, I'll sacrifice and stuff and time and money for you. Where the Lord comes and moves towards me in love, I can walk out towards others in love because I was a mess and Jesus loved me. So I can love someone else who's a mess and love them if I'm reflecting Christ. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, who says, we are shaped, transformed, like a butterfly is the language. We are metamorphosized one degree of glory into another degree of glory. So that London, oh, that London would get a taste of the glory of the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ through our Thank you.